welcome. This is our second to the last challenge of 2022. Guys, it's almost 2023. I, I don't know what, that's kind of a weird number. I'm sure God has great things in store for us in 2023. Um, have any of you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah? I think it's one of those places like you can hear about it, you can see photos of it. But when you're standing there, it's just like jaw-dropping wonder. Like, this is just such an incredible place to be. Any of you guys ever been to the Sistine Chapel? Some people? If you ever get a chance to go to Rome, you got to go to Rome. Got to go to the Sistine Chapel. But you enter into this quiet room, and hundreds of people are there with their necks, like, craned to the ceiling, standing there just taking in this masterpiece. And you have to be really quiet in there, and it's really hard. Um, but I kind of just wanted to lay down there and take it all in. It was just like the view is just so incredible. And there are things in life that totally live up to what we've heard about and what pictures that we've seen. And some of those things even surpass our imagination. I would say like the Grand Canyon for me, Sistine Chapel. But when I moved out to L.A., my dad's twin brother drove the rental truck with my his daughter, my cousin Emily, and then my brother. And so they none of them had ever been to L.A. before. And my family really loves visiting college campuses. And so my uncle's like, we can't leave L.A. until we see USC. And my brother's like, we can't leave USC before seeing Tommy Trojan. I've seen this on ESPN for years. I got to see him. And so then I was like, I know where it is. I know where it is. So I was leading them over there. And my brother's like, that's Tommy Trojan? Like, ESPN makes him out to be massive, right? But he's just so small. Like, he's on this pedestal. But, like, my brother just had these grander visions of, of who Tommy Trojan would be in real life. And I've heard the same thing about the Mona Lisa. I've never been to France, but I've heard she's kind of small, too. The, the famous woman with the smirk, right? I think some of us think that way about God, that if we really get to know him, we fear that we may be disappointed as well. We've heard other people talk about him. We've even adopted some of their opinions about him. Um, but you may be thinking in your heart, but if I got up close and personal, what if he's just not as great as other people have told me that he is? And I don't know about you, but I don't like to be disappointed. In fact, I go out of my way to prevent myself from being disappointed. And a lot of us have been disappointed by people who are close to us, and we can still feel the sting of that. The expectations can really be killer in a lot of ways in life. We manufacture things in our minds to be a certain way, and then when we bump up against reality that flies in the face of what we thought, you know, we're disappointed. So I submit to you, when we take time to learn and to get to know the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, none of us will ever be disappointed. Ever, never. We find ourselves in awe of his hugeness, in wonder of his power and his grandeur and his majesty, that our finite minds cannot wrap themselves around the awesomeness of God. And I'd like us to consider tonight that perhaps our view of God is just too small. If I had a lot of money, I would have bought each of you guys this book called Your God is Too Small. It's a great little book. It's written by J.B. Phillips, and it's just brilliant in the way he unpacks the way that we oftentimes view God. We bring him down to our level, a level that we can understand, that we can manage, or maybe someone close to us, like a detached CEO or a, a doting grandfather. A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
And I think most of us don't really give a lot of thought to our thoughts about God. And tonight, I'd like to lead us to consider who God is. You know, it's easy to going about my day-to-day life, and maybe you can agree with this, to have a very big view of myself, but a really small view of God. Isaiah is a prophet who lived a long, long time ago, and he wrote this beautiful poem, which exposes and rebukes our inflated view of ourselves and our deflated view of God. The reality is we can only know God because he's revealed himself to us. That the God of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth would make himself known and invite us to know him is just mind-boggling, right? And I don't know about you, but it really irks me, irritates me, angers me, whatever you want to call it, when people make assumptions about me or say things about me that are untrue. I want to defend myself. Tonight, we're going to hear from God's perspective. We're going to look at what he says about himself. And in this chapter, I guess we are going to look at quite a few verses tonight. Um, Isaiah is reminding the people of God who God is, that he is in complete control. He is firmly seated on his throne. He is ruling and he is reigning sovereignly over creation. And our identity and our security is found in him. So this God of the Bible reveals himself. He is a self-announcing God. We're going to see through this passage tonight just the magnitude of the Almighty God. But before we go dive into the passage, I want to give a little bit of context to what was going on. So Isaiah is kind of a longer book in the Old Testament, 66 chapters. Um, it's got a poetry, poetic. To me, it's hard to understand. Maybe you guys, you're so much smarter than me. I'm sure you would, you would get it much faster than I did. So the first big chunk of the book, chapters like 1 through about 39, warn of God's judgment, right? If the people, you continue to place your trust and human leaders and people who are walking away from God, there's going to be consequences to that, right? So then in chapters 40 through 55, it's this promise of redemption for these people who are experiencing the judgment that came, which they had been warned about earlier, right? And then the remaining chapters, chapters 55 through 66, deal with the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the city and the temple. So long before Isaiah wrote the words that we will read tonight, God promised Israel that they would be a great nation, right? For those of you who've grown up around the church, you know, this promise to Abraham. So this cultural identity that was deeply tied to their special relationship with the God, the one true God, the God of Scripture. So remember when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt and he led them around the wilderness and then helped them conquer their enemies and gave them this home that they would settle in and make their their home. So he promised them that through them, he was going to establish his kingdom on earth. But due to the consequences of their choices, God allowed the Babylonians to besiege this capital city and to take the Israelites captive. So from their perspective, it seemed like God didn't do anything. God didn't show up. Their worldview was such that their defeat was God's defeat. And so it was as though Yahweh, their God, had been conquered by the Babylonian like little g-gods, though this wasn't true at all. That was just their perspective. So we're going to begin in Isaiah 40, verse 12. So Isaiah, for those of you who are pre-law, you may really identify with this. He's kind of like this attorney in court. He's presenting legal arguments to Israel saying, okay, this is the matchless power of Yahweh. 
the God of the scriptures, over all the earthly powers, over the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians. So that's where we're going to enter in in verse 12. It's, it's about thir a third of the way through of this poem. So we're going to read Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 31. He says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and then a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood will not want. They will look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to the ground. Then he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind seeps them away like chaff. To whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like wings on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So tonight we're just going to take some time to examine this poem and learn who God is as he has revealed himself to be. So the first thing, we're going to look at how God reveals himself in creation. So in verse 12 it says, Who has measured the water, waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? So I did a little experiment when I was at home, and I got a tablespoon out and stood it the kitchen sink and held out my hand and measured to see how much water I could fit. And I think I have a very average sized hand for a woman. Um, and actually only one tablespoon would fit without spilling over. And the earth is 71% water. So God is so big. The waters of the earth are that small to him. He can hold it in his hand. I love this quote by Alistair Begg. It said, Isaiah is pointing out that what is massive to us is manageable to God. There are massive things I know going on in each of your lives. And just remember, it's very manageable to God. 
the God of the universe who can hold all the waters in the palms of his hand, he can handle it. So in comparison to the magnitude of God, the universe is pretty tiny, right? He doesn't need an infinite tape measure to measure the heavens. He uses his hand. Like, my hand can't even mark my face, and his hand just marks the heavens, the entire heavens. You know, scientists are making discoveries all the time about the heavens, the galaxies, the universe. And he talks about the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, the Himalayas. Name your favorite mountain range, and they can just be as if on a scale. That's how small they are in comparison to who God is. And through this prophetic poem, Isaiah is allowing us to see God through God's eyes as he reveals himself. God is giving us a glimpse of how he relates to creation. So the first thing is God reveals himself in creation. The second thing is God reveals his omniscience. So it says in verses 13 and 14, Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You know, I think we can all think of people we've met in life who are kind of know-it-all people. They can be rather obnoxious. Um, but God is nothing like those people. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't pretend to know things he doesn't know because he already knows everything, right? That homework assignment you don't get, he created all the pieces behind it. Physics, biomedical, blah, blah, blah. I mean, differential equations, things you guys are learning that I don't even know. God knows all of it. There's nothing he doesn't know. You can invite him into your homework. You can invite him into your quiz section. Whatever you need, he has the answer. He's accessible. He's available. He doesn't learn things. He doesn't need to hire a consultant to expose things that could go better in his universe. He's fully capable and seated on his throne. So these rhetorical questions are really a tool to help us see who God is in comparison. Who could ever tell God what to do? I don't know about you, but sometimes I try, or I don't try, I do. I'm like, if this could happen in this way by this time, I'd be grateful. Check back in later. You know, it never works well when I tell God what to do. His ways are always better. It's in God that we gain understanding. It's in him that we find wisdom. And that makes sense when we consider who God is, right? And then thirdly, we see God in relation to the nations of the earth. So we see God in relation to the nations of the earth. It says in verses 15 through 17, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Isn't it interesting, did you know that a phrase that you probably use or someone in your home has used again and again, drop in the bucket, is actually from the Bible? That's where it comes from, guys. Um, but this idea really conveys, right, smallness, insignificance. Like, a drop is minuscule. I don't say, like, if there's a bucket full of water, someone, like, could you get me a drop out? You're like, a, a drop out of the bucket. Like, a drop doesn't really make that much of a difference, right? It's like, one more drop, what's one more drop, right? Um, but it's neat how Isaiah compares this. Like, on one hand, the finite, the created, the limited, that would be us. And on the other hand, God, the infinite, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the creator of everything. I take great comfort, I hope you do too, in the assurance that you could combine all the nations on the earth and all the powers that they are together, and compared to God, it would be just like a drop in a bucket. 
Isn't that amazing? I love this quote. I love this website called gotquestions.org, but this quote was just so good I had to share it with you. It says, when we perceive the incomparable excellence of the sovereign Lord and King of all creation, everything else in life, including every menacing enemy, falls into proper perspective. And I think that's what we need each and every day. I know I do. I need proper perspective of who God is and who I am. When you and I go to the store, like I've been texting some of you about Thanksgiving things and I was buying sweet potatoes and potatoes, like we don't like dust off the potatoes on our pants or try to get all the dirt off because the dust is really inconsequential when we pay for it, right? It's like, oh, that, like it doesn't add up, right? It's like it's just dust. It's just a little bit of dirt. And that's what the islands of the world are to God. Not that they are inconsequential, but compared to him, he is just so huge. That's what they are. And God is not saying that he doesn't care about the nations. Not at all. You read scripture and you see over and over again that his heart is for people. People from every tribe and nation and tongue. And one day, all people, like there will be people represented from every tribe, nation, tongue, worshiping and gathered before his throne. And so he gives us this direction to take this good news, the gospel to all nations, because the nations matter to God. But in comparison to him and the powers that they represent, it's so small. Because if you think back to your last history class, and for some of you that might have been a while, you know, the Greeks and the Romans, the powers that were so powerful back in the day, are not anymore. Like nations rise, nations fall, kingdoms crumble, and God remains the same, steadfast, exalted above all nations. And this reference to Lebanon, have any of you guys ever been to Lebanon? I would love to go to Lebanon. But Lebanon, from what I've read and heard, is very woodsy, like forest full of cedar trees, very beautiful. And so this idea that you could burn all the trees in Lebanon and all the creatures in there, and that would be your sacrifice and offering to God, and that could in no way honor our God who is worthy of praise. It's just such a small offering that, that we can bring, that sacrifices, however numerous they are, never do justice to the greatness of God. That's just how big and powerful he is. And it's so important for us to recognize who God is and who he has revealed himself to be, and to ask him to illuminate the wrong thinking we have in our hearts, in our minds about himself. Because that's what the enemy loves to do, right? He loves to plant wrong ideas in our minds about who God is. He did that with Eve. He's still doing it with us today. So encouraging that this God of the universe, this immense, infinite, incomparable God, would choose to reveal himself to us and invite us to know him so that we could see who we are in relation to him and our deep need for him, right? And despite our deep need for him, again and again and again, we run to God's, little g-gods of our own making. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are like idol factories. So we churn out our idols like a manufacturing plant. It's just like again and again and again. But that all of our hearts were made to worship God. And when we choose not to worship him, we will worship something of our own making. So it says in verses 18 through 20, With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? 
As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. You know, this verse talks about humanity, the rich and the poor. The rich are able to get a certain kind of idol, and the poor a wooden one. And both are this picture of futility. No, you and I are not like going to the village to find a metal shop to give this blacksmith, I don't know, like a specifications for making an idol. That we think of that, that, that's absurd. We don't do that. But we do make gods of our own, don't we? We prefer ones that we can control, that agree with our standards of morality, and allow us to live however we think is going to make us happy. Because we've bought into the idea that life is about us. So through this poem, Isaiah helps us see that there is one true God and that everything else is a lie. Satan, he's the father of lies, deceives us into believing that life can be found apart from Jesus. And it is a vain pursuit each and every time. And God takes on the idols of the world and says, why? Why would you trade me for them? Things that you make with your own hands, why? What are you thinking? No, we don't like sit on our front porches and whittle away wooden statues to worship. We go buy things. We worship things that our hands have made, things we've achieved, our, our GPAs, our transcripts, our resumes, our careers, making a name for ourselves. And I love Isaiah's response to idolatry. He says, you know this. You've seen this. You've heard it. In verses 21 through 24, he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. This God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. He is ruling and he is reigning above everything. He exists outside of time and space. And I love this picture of being enthroned above the circle of the earth. I think it just helps us see that God is so far above us. That the petty affairs of our day-to-day -day lives, he's not troubled by them. He's not overwhelmed. He's not perplexed in the midst of, oh no, what's going to happen like I am? And he can bring things to an end at any time he chooses. That he loves us. He knows we're little grasshoppers. And he strengthens his people. You know, it's fun to, to fly on an airplane and to get the window seat if you can. If you get the, I don't know if you register early enough if you're on Southwest, check in. And you get the window seat and you can look down. And sometimes maybe you can see farmers, I don't know, or people at Target in the parking lot. Little, there are people on the um, tarmac. I don't know. It depends on how eager you are to look out the window. But we're the same size as them, but from up in the air, they look so small, right? And from God's vantage point, seated above the throne of the circles of the earth, we're just tiny little creatures, right? Creatures of immense value, but in comparison to him, we're little grasshoppers, little bitty grasshoppers. And I, verse 
23, Isaiah writes also about the leaders of countries. You know, we can have full confidence that leaders, elected officials, people in charge will not be in office one hour longer than God intends. That I can go through my day and you can go through your day in full and utter confidence that God is in charge, that he is trustworthy, and that he is seated on his throne and no election, no coup, no demonstration will ever bump him off that throne. And that is a perspective that can change the way we live each and every day. Isaiah goes on to say in verses 25 and 26, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You know, as Angelinos, I feel like this verse is particularly significant because we can't see the stars. And I don't know about you, but I forget they're there. And then I go to places like FDC or Humor, like, stars, I forgot. That's what's in the sky, those, not just airplanes that you see flying about. But, you know, according to astronomers, I find this mind-boggling. There are probably more than 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And they estimate about 200 trillion galaxies exist. And each star is distinct in its own way. And our great God keeps track of stars, something I could never count. And he knows there's not one that's missing. Can I tell you, on Saturday, I took freshman shopping for Operation Christmas Child. I couldn't keep track of them. <laughs> but it wasn't totally my fault. They weren't where they said they were supposed to be, where I said they were supposed to be. But still, I was like, okay, somebody is missing. And there wasn't a big group, but I struggled with just that small group. Thank goodness I'm not in charge. What a comfort that something so outside of my control is not outside of the dominion of God. And how much more he cares for his people created in his image. He talks about this tent to dwell in, expansion of the universe, this creator and sustainer, that he sustains all things by his powerful word, that in him all things are held together, that I'm held together and you're held together and everything else. In this closing section of this chapter may be familiar to some of you. It says in verses 27 to 31, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Do you ever feel unseen by God? Maybe forgotten? I know for me, I, need to, I forget to remember. Do you ever forget to remember? I forget to remember who God is. And it really impacts my perspective and my day. To remind myself of who he is. He is not a God who forgets. He's not a God who overlooks. He's not a God who sleeps or even gets tired. He doesn't need to yawn. He's unfathomable and incomparable. 
ancient Hebrew culture revered eagles. I think that's so interesting because as America, you know, we love eagles. Um, we have something in common with ancient Hebrew culture. They viewed them kind of as mighty warriors that fiercely protected their young. I love that imagery of that ferocity and tenderness. Um, the eagles would just carry their little eaglets to safety away from threats or dangers. But they're also known for their strength and for their courage in dangerous times and situations. They can actually fly so high that they can go above the storm clouds to safety, which is pretty cool. So eagles' wings is this figure of speech commonly used to attribute these characteristics to people. So what Isaiah is saying, he uses wings like eagles in the same way, attributing these characteristics of eagles to those who remain faithful to God and look forward to their heavenly reward. And the phrase mount up can be translated to go up, to ascend, to go up over a boundary. So Isaiah is communicating the promise that God will provide renewed strength and courage to overcome obstacles if Israel would have patience and trust in the Lord's sovereign timing. Because God's timing oftentimes is not the same as my timing. I don't know about you if you can relate to that. And the same principle applies to us today, that God will provide the power and the strength if we're willing to wait on him that those who wait on the Lord, wait means anxious expectation, confident hope. I can know for certain that help is coming. He promised it would and it always will. When I'm weary, when I don't have strength, I can trust he's gonna come through. He provides what I need. So in conclusion, what are the implications for your life today and for my life today, if we truly believe that this God who describes himself in Isaiah 40 is true and real and the one that we live our lives for, I think it will impact our lives on three levels. I'm sure there's many more. We're just going to talk about three. The first one is our perspective. I can trust the one who sits enthroned on the circles of the earth. I can trust him. He knows all the stars by name, and not one of them is missing. I can trust the one that is so huge that nations are tiny to him. There's purpose in the troubles, and these troubles are not permanent. I don't need to wonder if God has forgotten he is always working, and I don't need to wonder if he cares. He does. As I was commuting this week, I was listening to a sermon, and um, these two sentences stuck out with me. I wanted to pass them along to you. He said, when you don't understand the decisions God is making, dwell on his character. When you don't understand the decisions God is making, dwell on his character. He went on to say, I'm going to rehearse God's character over and over again until my heart has confidence. And I think that would be something that would be good for each of us to do, to rehearse God's character over and over again until our heart grows in confidence, reminding ourselves who God is. Because it doesn't change God if we believe or we don't believe him, right? It doesn't impact him either way. But boy, howdy, does it change us. So number one, our perspective. Number two, our prayer life. I think when we see God for who he is, it changes how we pray. It changes what we pray for. I am not praying to an impotent God of my own making. I'm praying to the one enthroned above the circle of the earth who is bigger than I am capable of understanding. And for that, I'm very grateful. So our perspective, our prayer life, and then finally our peace. There's no need to prove myself. There's no way I could earn his love and affection. I'm his beloved little grasshopper, and I'm grateful. He knows my name. He knows my needs. 
I am very small in comparison to God, but I am invaluable, and so are you. I don't need to worry. I don't need to fret. I don't need to fear. I don't need to run scenarios. My God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He doesn't need my help. I actually have nothing to offer him. So as finals approach, as things get more stressful in the weeks ahead, and as some of you are going home to spend some time with your families and all the complexity that those situations can bring, don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember how great is our incomparable God. Let's pray and welcome back up the worship team. Father, we are in awe that you would invite us to know you, that you have made yourself known through your word and through creation, and we say thank you. Pray that you would help us to remember who you are in the day-to-day interactions with people and the stressors and the to-do lists, that we would keep our eyes focused and remember that we are little grasshoppers and you are seated on your throne and there is nothing that can change that. So thank you for the confidence and the hope that we have in you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.